I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast all about leaving the EU. As always, I am here in the Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce, joined by Christian Spence. Hello, Christian. Hello. And fresh from his travels in Spain, Alex Davis. How are you? Hi, mate. I'm good. Right, so today there has been further developments. We have got past the, uh, the trauma of the election. We're not quite past the trauma of any agreement that might be happening with the DUP, but we do have a Queen's speech. So I'm going to kick off with you, Christian. First of all, what is in this Queen's speech? What's in it? Well, we've got a range of bills. Not surprisingly, um, they're rather smaller in number than we normally have. Um, because, of course, Theresa May has been rather constrained by losing her majority in Parliament in the general election. And, as you said, they've not yet managed to uh, to sign off any deal with the DUP. That may or may not happen over, over the coming days. Uh, so Brexit dominates, of course, eight bills overall. Um, the Great Repeal Bill has lost its adjective. It's now just the Repeal Bill. Uh, but <laughs> that essentially is... Absolutely. But that's essentially going to do everything we've, we've talked about on these podcasts before. That's about translating as much uh, EU law and regulation uh, into the UK statute book. So essentially the, uh, the regulator environment looks the same the day after we leave as it was uh, before. And for the first time, we see the first set of bills where the UK is going to have to change its own, our own national policy um, to, to make up for the, essentially the lack of policy that will come from the EU statute books. Uh, so bills on customs, trade, immigration, fisheries and agriculture, uh, nuclear safeguards and international sanctions. Those are going to be chunky bills. They're going to take a long time. And some of them are going to have to wait quite a while before we see them because, they're, of course, they're going to be hugely dependent on the negotiations uh, and what comes out of those over the next, uh, over the next 12 months or so. Beyond that, actually, it's pretty small fry. Um, there's a couple of bills rolled over from previous parliaments. So we've got legislation coming on developing the UK's space industry and on automated and electric vehicles. Um, the high-speed rail phase 2A is coming into legislation, so that's essentially keeping it going north of Birmingham. Uh, last year, we got sign-off for the London to Birmingham stretch uh, and building work starting on that now. So the bit that will take from Birmingham up to Crewe, 
uh, will start to be legislated for. I guess like the first bit, that's going to take a number of years to go through because of all the appeals and the, the uh, compulsory purchase orders. Um, but you know, beyond that, that's really about it. There's all sorts of uh, smaller tweaks, uh, tenants' fees. You might remember the Conservatives yeah. talking about uh, wanting to try and do something about the, the the kind of sometimes random amounts of money that sometimes appear to people who rent property uh, from landlords or agents. So there's a bill going to be brought forward to try and manage those, along with other tweaks to travel protection, uh, domestic violence and abuse bill. Uh, some financial guidance bills and I think perhaps more interesting for us there's one on data protection um, now that's props a bit different to the rest because that is really about making sure the the EU's changes to data protection also will continue to exist in the UK statute book so they don't talk about that one uh, alongside Brexit but essentially it's going to be I think really the, the substance of that is going to be making sure the new GDPR regulations which kick in in a year's time um, will keep going after we leave after we leave the EU. But yeah. yeah, that's it. It's very, very light on the domestic agenda. Yeah, now the data protection stuff is interesting because it is actually fundamentally incredibly boring stuff, but very, very important to business. It's one of those unseen things. Yeah, absolutely hugely important and increasingly becoming important in the trade deal scenario. Um, so, you know, security of data um, when you're trading across borders, particularly as you start to look at services uh, across borders, uh, it's going to be a big issue as part of the Brexit stuff, certainly. Alex, is there anything in the Queen's speech this time around which isn't in, which you would have liked to have seen included? Uh, I, I don't know about things which aren't in which I would have liked to have seen included, but there's lots of things which were in the manifesto which have been left out. Yeah. Um, it's basically, you know, I saw a tweet that was, that was like, uh, that sound you can hear is the manifesto being shredded. <laughs> um, so it was basically all the, the really contentious stuff which got people quite angry has, has, has basically just been dropped completely, so... The, uh, the fox hunting uh, vote, uh, the dementia tax stuff, which, you know, it's, it's taken up so much of our time and now it's just, it's just all gone. It, it kind of, it's slightly annoying, but, uh, but I, guess you, I guess you could say it's, it's some kind of progress, I guess, uh, given the government's current predicament. Um, I mean, uh, the, the Queen's speech, it strikes me as a bit of an odd thing. I, I was saying this morning to Christian that I, I've never seen a Queen's speech before. I mean, I guess outside of this job, I probably wouldn't have watched one. Um, I don't, uh, Christian, can you, can you give me anything on, on why we do this and, and what it's all about? That's, that's a good point, actually, because outside of Christmas, and I don't even watch it at Christmas now, I don't even know if that is a, a legislative, legislative, I can't say it now, uh, I don't even know if that's an official thing. Um, what is, do, do you know anything about the Queen's speech? So, I mean, it's, it's basically, it's the, it's, I mean, the, the official title of today is the State Opening of Parliament. So it, it, it's, this, is the, this is the moment where, you know, we get to see visibly what our constitution looks like. Um, you know, it's the, it's, there's a very visible recognition here that the Queen sits over and above uh, the two Houses of Parliament uh, and that it, it is in her name that the government of the day um, delivers legislation. We're kind of reminded that with of, of things like that through, uh, through royal assent. So, you know, government and parliament can pass legislation, but actually until it's got the, the monarch's signature on it, um, then it doesn't apply. So we're reminded essentially that the monarch is, is absolute and in charge. Mm. But you're right, it's a big ceremonial event. Um, the, I, mean, I think the one thing everyone remembers, if you have seen it on TV, is this, uh, is this chap called Black Rod. Um, I thought you were going to say Dennis Skinner. Then. Well, there's him too, and it, sometimes it may feel as if he's been around even longer than Black Rod. Um, but uh, Black Rod, of course, is sent. He does this very lonely walk from the from the Lord's Chamber through the central lobby um, to the to the Commons Chamber. But before he gets there, the door is slammed shut into his face. 
um, and he has to knock before uh, knock before he's let in. What's going on there? It's essentially this dates right back to the Civil War, um, and this is about uh, this is essentially it's the, one of the roots of why we have the Civil War in the first place. It's all about who is notionally in charge. So the Queen, of course, is is you know constitutionally at the head of all this. She summons the MPs to the chamber, um, but they shut the door to say, no, we're independent. The Commons has nothing to do with the monarchy. We are absolutely independent. We are the ones who, who rule in the monarch's name. Um, and we don't just do the monarch's bidding um, uh, without question. So the door gets slammed as that symbol. Um, he knocks and then does the invite, and of course, of course, everyone follows because that's the way it goes. But it, yeah, it's on those it's on those very odd bits where hundreds of years of history is still on display. And it? how how binding is the Queen's speech thing? I mean, can bills be introduced that haven't been in the Queen's speech? Can bills, you know, get thrown out that were in the Queen's speech? I mean, is it just a ceremonial thing? It is really. It's a, it's a statement of legislative intent essentially. So yeah. it, it allows the monarch to say that this is what her government's going to be doing. But certainly, uh, the government can introduce bills uh, that aren't in the Queen's speech. Every member of the House is entitled to, to introduce bills, so we call them private members' bills. Uh, they can come through, and certainly Queen's speech bills can fall. The, the usual convention, though, is that the failing of a Queen's speech bill is seen as a vote of no confidence. Oh. Uh, now, that matters less these days because of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, because that's changed the way votes of no confidence work. Um, but essentially, it's seen as a pretty, damning, a pretty sort of damning indictment on a government if it can't get a Queen's speech commitment uh, passed. Yeah. Well, just interestingly on the private members' bill, a bit of trivia for you. When you're going through a Conservative Party selection, they ask you for two, mem- two, two members' bills. Uh, private members' bills. One is to be serious, and the other one is to be less serious. And I heard of one last year for selection, which was the regulation of the size of, size of letterboxes for campaigning. That's it. There's all of these sorts of things. Yeah, there are there are many things crop up in private members' bills. Very few ever make it as far as legislation, uh, but just occasionally they do, they actually get on their way onto statute. Well, uh, in the words of Den- uh, um, Dennis Skinner and his heckle today, get. Get, get your skates on. Uh, skates have been attached, and they are currently rolling into the Euro- into the European negotiations. So, what are we on now? Day two of European negotiations. Is it is it day two? I thought they'd be going for. A it's day three. We kicked off on Monday, didn't we? Yeah. So yes. Day, day three. three that's right. On, uh, on Wednesday. Though I'm not entirely sure anything's happened since we met. No. Uh, since the, since the two met. So yes, we uh, we we sent uh, uh, David Davis and his Secretary of State off to off to Brussels on Monday for the. Uh, the first round of talks, lots of photographs um, from the from the chamber there in Brussels. Do we know anything more? I don't think we do. Um, no, it seems to me we wait for events followed by event, and nothing really happens. Yeah. So we have a referendum. Nothing really happened. We sub- we submitted Article Fifty. Nothing really happened. David Davis is now negotiating, and still nothing has really happened. It does feel like that, but I think this was just the first days. So I think it was lovely if you if you look to the uh, European Commission's website, which is by far and away the best place to find out any information on the Brexit negotiations, because they're publishing everything, whereas our government isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, th- they published the agenda, and what was nice, I think, was the kind of the, the meteor section of the agenda was about discussing when the future meetings were going to take place. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but I have also spent too much of my life in meetings deciding about what will happen in other meetings, um, but that certainly seemed a substantial. Part. But I think they've kicked things off. There were some breakout sessions, uh, apparently looking at specific bits of the uh, 
specific bits of the deal and what we'll go through. Um, and I think the main news that came out of it really was it kind of sounds like the UK has given into the EU's request that we talk about divorce and payments first before we talk about trade deals. This, is, this according to David Davis earlier in the year, was going to be the row of the summer. Uh, in his phrase, because he wanted the everything on the table at the same time, but it looks like we've conceded that and uh, and we're going along with the EU's wishes. I think I think some people have kind of reported on this as a, a kind of major capitulation, and then you've got people on the other side saying that you know it's good that we're progressing and that we've come to an agreement and it's a two-way negotiation and, and that kind of thing. And I, I, again, I think like with many issues in this, it's it's not quite as clear cut as that because I think. I think there's been slight movement on either side, but it's certainly been a larger swing on, on our side than theirs. Um, I think we've said before that the EU's position in terms of the sequencing of the talks and what they want to talk about and arrange first has been set out for quite some time and they haven't really shifted. Um, whereas, obviously, David Davis and, and, and our position for, for, the, for the most part has been that we will have parallel negotiations on the divorce bill and the future trade arrangement. Um, but I think there has been a little bit more movement perhaps on the EU side than people uh, are seeing because I think the original demands from the EU were that we would essentially get the divorce uh, settlement completely dealt with before they would even think about discussing trade, whereas now it's switched to this, we just want to have made, you know, uh, what was it, significant progress before they'll open up trade, trade talks. So I think they have slipped a little bit, but considering... Um, the way that David Davis was talking about this before the negotiations started, I, I certainly think it's more of a capitulation than a, than a compromise at this stage. But then again, I'm not sure that that's a bad thing um, because essentially at this point the cards are completely in their hands and if David Davis would have said, you know, no, we're not, we're not going to agree with that, that sequencing, Barnet would have just cr- crossed his arms and said, well, come back, come back to me when you, you want to talk, you know. And, you know, the, the Tories have been riding on this rhetoric that no deal is better than a bad deal and they're prepared to walk away. And we had an indication on day one that maybe they're not so willing to do that as they uh, originally made out to be. So uh, I, I, I kind of see it as, a, as, a, as a, a decent first move. The other thing which I find interesting, and I wonder what your thoughts might be on this, is is this perhaps a sign that the government maybe has been bluffing on some of this stuff? Um, particularly around the sequencing. I mean, David Davis obviously said it was going to be the row of the summer and then on the first day just, just instantly came to an agreement. Is this perhaps a sign that the, the government's been talking tough but isn't prepared to take it into the negotiations? I, I, I kind of think so, and I think we'll probably see quite a lot more of this yeah. uh, over the coming few months. You know, um, certainly, you know, things like the no deal is better than the bad deal has been kind of kicked around a lot since the general election decision as well. Um, and you know, lots of people commenting on kind of the futility and pointlessness of that statement, really, uh, when it's so inevitably uh, untrue. And even Philip Hammond was, uh, you know, one of his interviews over the weekend was was keen to stress that you know No Deal would be a would be one of the most po- worst possible outcomes uh, for both sides. It's interesting you bring up Philip Hammond. He had his Mansion House speech yesterday, and he seems a lot softer than many of the Brexiteers, Davis included. Um, do you think there's going to be some internal battles now in the Tory party as to how this starts to proceed? I think there's... I th- yeah, yes is the short answer. I think, um, I think the challenge for the Tory party is, whilst it was riding high in the polls, it's possible it was kind of quite happy to go along with the, you know, the, the rhetoric that was coming out of Number 10 particularly and, and, and Dexu as well at the time. Now it's kind of... Now clearly there is a game to be played. 
um, you know, the, the Conservatives no longer have a have a, have a majority in uh, in Parliament. Um, all of a sudden, options are available which weren't available before. You know, mm -hmm. the the people talk about you know, with a, in a minority government, the Prime Minister is stripped of power, and of course that's true because essentially every backbencher, every single backbencher now has the potential um, to drop a government bill. See, um, I'm you know. of a different opinion here. I think the in traditional terms, sure, the Prime Minister has less power. But because of the opposition, and it's not like they've got Yvette Cooper and, David, and Ed Miliband and David Miliband across the way. They've got people who they really don't want in power. If anything, I feel that it gives Theresa May a slightly stronger hand because if they don't go along with what she wants, it's a bit of a doomsday scenario, uh, particularly with the um, DUP. Uh, to go going back to them because you know I'm not entirely sure Corbyn's particularly friendly to the DUP. No, and and I think we, we've seen quite a lot of commentary on that in the past few days, saying that actually even if there is no formal confidence and supply agreement between the DUP mm. and the Tories, um, the DUP will certainly support the Queen's speech. I think they'll vote that through when the vote goes through next week, simply because for them the risk of uh, the risk of a Corbyn uh, government is too high um, uh, for them. So I think that will come through. The question, of course, is really is what odds do you place on, on an election being forced? Um, now, the challenges here are lots of people seem to forget, always keep forgetting this. The Fixed Term Parliament Act is still in force. Mm. Um, and we all sort of, we all thought about that. We all, you know, we all remember when it came in under the coalition government and we know it was all a, a relatively lazy bit of legislation, essentially just to hammer the coalition together for a, for a full five-year term. And it, it managed to do that okay. But it has implications on how you call and whether you can call early general elections and what happens with no confidence votes in the House. So the question is really, with the public mood as it is, would Labour really want to go for an early election, you know, to force a second election uh, any time soon by voting down confidence in the House? I'm not sure that they're, you know, they're a clear and confident win. Because don't forget, they did well in the polls. They did, you know, they increased their vote share uh, by the largest amount since the Second World War. Uh, they got it up to 40%, but they've, they did it through that challenge that Labour always has, which is piling up votes in safe seats. Mm. So, you know, we now have, what, 25 seats, with the, 25 Labour seats with a majority of over 30,000. Um, we saw the big increase in turnout, particularly from the under-25s, but the under-35s generally. But mostly those are university student voters who live and are voting in constituencies Labour already have won. So they're still, you know, I think we forget Labour are 50 or 60 seats behind, um, short of the majority. So they've mm. got a long way to go and they've got a long way to climb from a 40% vote share to get a 40% share up 60 odd seats. And for a safe majority, realistically, they need, they need 80 or 90. Um, that's a big ask. Yeah, and I'm not sure they'd be willing to risk it. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting how the kind of mood seems to have shifted slightly even since the general election because... Corbyn and McDonnell were certainly hailing it as a, a win for, for Labour after the election. I mean, they said that obviously the Tories had, had won the election, but they hadn't really, they'd lost. And that it was, yeah. it was mainly a, a win for Labour. Um, but I think if you look back to 2015, I think Labour at that point were 48 seats behind uh, the Tories in the 2015 election. Um, and that was hailed as like a, a massive failure. And, you know, they were going to have to take a serious look at themselves and the future of the party. And in this election, they're 60 seats behind and it's being held as a win. But 
in recent days, it tends to have shifted and the Labour Party seemed to have kind of settled down and, 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 re and realised what's, what's going on here. I mean, you mentioned before this whole day of rage thing, which was arranged... Yes arranged for today and I, 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 have n I have no idea how many people turned up or how it's going or anything like that but well, jo five o'clock I think that's that, that's when the rage was really that's when the rage will really start right right yeah well John McDonald was was on TV yesterday saying that you know he he, he definitely didn't um, want this to be a, a violent protest of any sort and that he you know people have to accept that Labour lost the election and he doesn't want this to get out of hand so it it it, it seems to me like Labour was celebrating this quite a lot early on, but as, as Christian just said, they uh, I, I don't know if it would really be a smart move for them to kind of cause a ruckus and potentially call a second election at this point. Because mm. even if they're doing well in the polls and the latest opinion polls put them about three points ahead of the uh, of the Conservatives, the, the, the big question is, yes, they might be able to improve their their vote share. Can they do it through seats, which is which is hard work for Labour, and uh, particularly without the, 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 the weight of Scottish MPs they've had previously. Uh, but he's also is what, you know, what would the reaction from the public be? You know, I don't get any sense the public is clamouring to go and uh, tramp into the uh, into the voting booths once again. I mean, just, uh, and there might be a bit of a punishment for that. Just ruminating here, I'm not entirely sure Labour's intention necessarily is to form a government. It's just to create as much disruption to the Conservative government as they possibly can. Yeah, and that might backfire. Um, you know, I think the, the British people certainly will, you know, make their voices heard about, you know, competence of government. And, you know, I think the, you know, I mean, my initial reaction to the this general election result when it came through was actually it's about right. Um, you know, the public have managed to express no particular confidence in either of the major parties to get on and lead. Um, so I, I, I'm just not sure that you know, I think the public will see through. You know, we force us into the polls again to delay the Brexit process again, um, to probably odds on end up with a just a different shape of hung parliament again. Mm. Um, you could see some. You know, it's perfectly possible. I think that you would see the British public trying to kind of punish the parties who are forcing them through and yet another election. It's really interesting, isn't it, to contrast the state of the British parliamentary system and the British government now to someone like. Macron in France, who's, who's obviously in power, he's won over his parliament, and he is starting to make noises um, in Europe, as, as are other European, European leaders, which strike me as a bit softer on, soft, softer on Brexit, in fact, almost to the point of saying, hey, you can cancel it now at any time. And my worry is, actually, that could well be on, on the agenda, should the government's change in the UK. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I rate terribly highly the chance of um, the chance of kind of abandoning the Brexit process. Um, I think for if you think don't forget a huge the big swing that we saw to the Conservatives was was you know about sixty percent of the UKIP vote um, heading straight to them. So I think if if the Tories were seen to to cancel the entire experience, they've got a they've got a big challenge from the from the vote share um, issue. I think Labour are in a similar position. I mean, Labour has had to straddle. The, the division between the parliamentary party and its core vote and its you know it's if I say it's older you know working class traditional core vote mm. and its metropolitan vote. So do you, um, do you think this European stance from the leader saying look you can come back at any time and then the actual official stance do you think it's a little bit of you know to put a very simple phrase to it like good cop bad cop? I'm I, I'm not sure. I mean Barney, Barnier for I mean for example is. is kind of mentioned before that he's happy for us to go down a soft Brexit route if we want to or, or potentially that he would be okay with the idea of us rethinking this whole thing but I, I just 
I wonder whether it would it would actually be bad for both sides if that were to happen. Um, it, it would just be seen as a massive waste of time. I, I don't know what the opinions of, of Britain would be after afterwards. I, I certainly just don't see us being welcomed back with open arms, if you know what I mean. I think this would mm. go down in history as a, a kind of massive screw-up on but our part. it would part. be a huge win for the EU. I mean, look, uh, put it this way, the most reluctant member wanted to leave, kind of sort of started... And then decided to come come back into the fold because there was no better option. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's a big Hotel California moment, isn't yeah, it? You it's know. a huge win. <laughs> but then does it? Go, but then does it go back to the argument which was before before the referendum that the EU can't be seen as a prison where a country can't leave even if it wants to? Um, and I mean, I guess you could put the failure of this down. I guess at this point down to perhaps incompetency on the government's part. I mean. I, I certainly think that Brexit is, is possible. I just don't think it's, it's necessarily being handled in the right way. Yeah, so I want to talk about this because uh, people who don't follow you on Twitter, they should. And you actually quoted a tweet today from one of our favourite commentators on this podcast, David Allen Green. Um, just go, in, go into this for me because the basic premise was it can be done, uh, maybe even should, should, should be done, but it can't be done via the route that the government has chosen. Is that, is that broadly paraphrasing? Uh, th- that's that's exactly right, really. Yeah, I mean, yeah. As I, as I said before, David Allen Green said tweeted that he he's not necessarily opposed to the idea of Brexit. He he just doesn't think that it can be done in the way that it's currently being handled. Mm. And and I would certainly agree with that. I mean, my opinions on the uh, I guess the the, pre- the best way of doing this haven't really shifted from six months before the referendum itself. Um, and I guess there's a number of phrases which I've been repeating for, for it seems like years now, which kind of summarise this whole thing, which is people are still kind of seeing Brexit as an event, not a process. I mean, I, and I've been saying that for a long time, but I think there's, there's another couple of phrases which I've seen which also sum it up nicely, is that Brexit, people are seeing Brexit as a cure rather than a catalyst. And potentially okay. pe- people are seeing Brexit as a solution without a problem, almost. Um, and so... I think what, what David Allen Green was kind of arguing is that what, what a lot of us have been saying from day one is that Brexit really needs to happen over potentially, you know, 10 years or more. Mm. It's, it's, the kind of, it's the only way that it can be done safely whilst mitigating the risk of, of, of a complete disaster. And it needs to be done in small stages. And at every step of the way, we need to take a step back and make sure that the stage has gone successfully before we go on to the next one. And I, I, I think where this has gone wrong is that the, the kind of the hardcore Brexiteers are worried about that kind of approach because they, they are more concerned about Brexit as an end rather than a means. Yeah, they, so they are more concerned that it, this actually happens. Yeah. Because if it doesn't happen, five years is a lifetime in politics. Yeah, I mean, all, 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 you know, all, all sensible facts and, 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 and things like that will tell you that this is something which we need to take our time over and be very careful about. But... The worry is from people on the other side that if we take that approach, it will either end up not happening or we will kind of get bogged down or stuck in a kind of interim place where we're kind of half in and half out. Mm. Um, And again, I think that's potentially a a bit of a simplistic way of looking at it because obviously we could find ourselves in a situation like Norway or Switzerland where we're, we're technically outside the EU. And we are, you know, pretty far removed away from the political side of the EU, which I think is where there's probably the, the, the largest amount of broad agreement between everyone, um, that that's the, the area that we want to move away from. Um, 
we could find ourselves where we're removed from the political side of it, but we're still, you know, attached at the hip, basically, uh, in, ter- in terms of trade and decision-making. And, and I think the worry from people on the other side is that we will just get stuck there. And so they've gone down this harder route of it needs to happen, and it needs to happen quickly, um, basically, to avoid any chance that it doesn't, it, it doesn't go wrong. Uh, okay, so just elaborating, elaborating on that a little bit more, everyone talks about the two years for the Brexit process to be completed. Mm-hmm. It strikes me as the Brexit process isn't really the process, or that it isn't really the end of it. In fact, it looks like this transitional deal is going to be far more important, far more substantial than this, two, than this initial two-year two year period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's certainly en- entering the, the fray and the mainstream kind of talk of politicians, because, I mean, you mentioned before the, the Philip Hammond speech. Um, obviously, he was joined by Mark Carney as well, and it was kind of a... A, a double team by them of, I guess, kind of softening. It seemed like a softening of the government's position, certainly mm. of uh, the way that Theresa May is talking about Brexit. But everyone now is is jumping on this whole transition bandwagon, and that there there needs to be a transition. Um, and they've they've been saying that for a long time that we need to avoid this cliff edge. And there was talk of interim arrangements, but now it seems like transitional arrangements are the, are the, are the terms that the government's really running with. Do, and so, sorry, <laughs> sorry, uh, carry on. Uh, no, I mean, I I just find it interesting because. I mean, first of all, the the whole two year Article Fifty thing is I I I kind of feel like it's starting to cloud debate a little bit because people first of all seem to have lost sight of the idea that artic- the two year negotiating period can be extended. I mean, it's it's something which we were talking about so much before before the referendum happened that you know we had this two year time limit, but if there was agreement, it could be extended. And people seem to have forgotten that that it doesn't have to just be two years. And and if this is going to be a massive disaster, then we can all agree to extend it by one or two if we want to. The EU's preference at this point, it seems, is that we have this t- two year negotiation and then uh, potentially a three year transitional arrangement after that. My I, my issue with this whole jumping on the transitional arrangement bandwagon again is that. No, everyone has still stopped talking about, about the EEA and EFTA as a route out of this. And the politicians seem so adamant about talking about a transitional arrangement when there is a really, really good one just waiting for us to, you know, to take. To take. Um, and it still seems to me like they're talking tough on this, but there's, there's kind of, even of an easy way out. And, and they're just kind of ignoring it. And I'm, I'm finding it quite, quite frustrating, really. So, uh, just of interest, does the Chamber have a view on transitional deals yeah and it's i mean like like much of our stuff it's a it, you know, it comes from it comes from a pragmatic point of view is that if you need transitional deals to to keep the stability and the you know smooth the smooth the rough ride from where we are now to the state to the you know the new world then absolutely do it and don't question it mm. that's there's no problem there at all excellent um okay do you guys want to vi- visit any other any other areas before I ask my last question? All right, so my final question is this. We're going to have a government that effectively can't really do much, and we'll ha- um, maybe we'll have a government that can't do much for the next five years. Is this really such a bad thing? Uh, I'm going to go here quickly. Not necessarily, I think, is, uh, is that one. You know, we, any of us in policy have, at some point in our life complained loudly and bitterly about over-legislation from government. Just the desire to endlessly bring forward new bills, um, often with very wide and deep scope, and you're not really sure what it is they're trying to achieve other than they're reacting to newspaper headlines, to polls, to the views of their own party, or or whatever. 
Um, you know, undoubtedly, despite lots of good stuff coming out of the Blair administration, they were they were prolific legislators. One a day or something. Yeah, huge, huge numbers of bills. Uh, you know, there was a new Criminal Justice Act every couple of years from, mm. from throughout that period. Um, a lot of it driven, you know, by very good reason behind you know, rises in terrorism, all the rest of it. But it becomes a difficult situation. And the reason why we kind of, from the business point of view, worry about this is. Businesses, of course, complain about regulation. They complain about it because it's difficult and it's hard. When you drill down into those sentiments, what it's usually about is it's about the speed of change. So we, I tend to use this phrase about it's the velocity of regulation rather than its uh. volume that's necessarily the problem. So businesses will say, oh, God, we now have to comply with auto-enrolment. And, and they will. They'll spend a year or two sweating over how you do this and the challenges and the pay increases that need to go along with it. But actually, once that's in and it's embedded and the systems are in place and it just becomes part of the daily management, the concern levels tend to drop. Now, that doesn't mean, I must, must sort of be clear here, that doesn't mean those things don't continue to be a burden on companies and potentially mm. you know, have long-term effects about how they choose to invest and how they choose to grow. That's certainly true. But kind of the administrative level softens and the concern about it softens as they get used to it. Um, so actually, a period where where government is likely to be legislating less is, for me, has the potential to be a really good thing. Yeah. We slow down legislation. I mean, I think you mentioned, I think both of you mentioned on the podcast before, the most important thing is stability. I mean, in my, my mind, this could be the ultimate form of stability. Nothing happens. Yeah. Just get on the business. I, I mean, and nothing happens is certainly very stable. Um, but of course, there is a danger. As always, there's a balance point here. And mm. I think, you know, the, the danger with the Queen's speech we see today, I said actually, which there's, you know, there's not a lot in it outside of, outside of Brexit that's going to have any big impact, the, the HS2, HS2A bill being the kind of big one. But there's also, to your earlier question, what's missing? Actually, the big reforms to business rates that were in the local government finance bill, which fell at the end of the term before the election, have not been reintroduced. Ah. So the concept of mayoral infrastructure levies, the concept of new business improvement districts, the concept of 100% localisation of business rates in, by 2020, all that has fallen, and there's no sign of that being reintroduced at the moment. Um, uh, there's nothing about wider infrastructure stuff. So there's nothing about Heathrow. Uh, there's nothing about Northern Powerhouse Rail, despite or you know, Crossrail North, despite it being in both of the major party manifestos. So the danger for us here, uh, and it's one of the things we're going to be working with government closely on, is Brexit's important. It's important you get it right, and you take as long as you, you long as you need to get it right. But and Brexit's important, and it's it's up the list of businesses' concerns. But actually, for lots of businesses, it isn't at the top of the list of their concerns. And things around rising input costs, about quality of infrastructure, about reforms to the skill system, are higher up the list. Now, some of that stuff doesn't need primary legislation, mm. so it doesn't need announcing in the Queen's speech today. Uh, but as yet, we've yet to see you know, government's intent on moving some of those things forward. Uh, but Brexit will dominate. But I think the other thing on the legislation side, you know, hung parliament, what it does potentially do is it forces government to seek consensus. That's exactly where I was going to go next, which is any bill that comes forward, at least... This can be broad agreement on it. I don't know if that makes for good or bad legislation, but at least there will be agreement. Yeah, and there's there are big divisions in 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 viewpoint. I think across the the kind of the you know political economy spectrum as to whether this is good or bad. Some people would say you know the first past the post system, which which Britain uses, is well, a it's fundamentally designed. You know, it, one of its strong points is it usually gives you very strong government. You know, you don't need more than 50% of the vote to get a healthy majority. Mm. We're an unusual on this side because that hasn't happened. Uh, and actually, the adversarial rough and tumble of a first-past-the-post parliament 
gives you the ability to flesh out really good quality legislation because actually it's a strong opposition. The downside to that and the downside to that system is actually if you have a majority in the House, then basically you can do what the hell you like. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, an executive with a majority uh, is pretty much carte blanche to legislate whatever they like because they've mm-hmm. got the majority in the house. The flip side of then is if you go to you know most of our European compatriots and actually most of the rest of the developed world actually is uh, is more of a proportional representation system where actually consensus is built into the system. Uh, it is impossible for any one party on the whole to get more than fifty percent. So you always need somebody with you. Um, does that create better legislation? I'm not sure. Does it create more stability? Almost certainly. Just because I think what it does take away, you know, for me, I think one of the potential benefits, and I said there's lots of trade-offs in this, is you get less of the pull every five years. Yeah. So it's less of the, you know, what we tend to do is, you know, the first things that a new administration does, if it's a change of political party from the old one, is start to undo most of what's happened before. And actually that becomes pretty tedious and pretty exhausting, particularly in long-term stuff. I think we see it you know, most clearly in the UK in things like infrastructure policy and skills policy. Every five years we start from scratch on things which actually need 20 or 30 years to bed in. Um, yeah, I think you know, other parliaments do this sort of stuff better than we do. Yeah, just uh, yeah, going off topic a bit, but just as an observation, traditionally you saw a lot more in a two-party system in the United States of... The, put both parties working across bench for I don't know what the US term would be. We don't get that at all over here. No, no. Exactly. You know, the, the the opposition's role has always been you know historically seen to oppose. Yeah. Um, now occasionally you get differences in that. So you know, you know the the conservative the conservative they opposition and education is one that comes to mind. Yeah, conservative administrations sort of two thousand and one two thousand and five. Sorry, conservative oppositions two thousand one and two thousand and five voted with the government on a lot of stuff. Mm. Um, you know where there was seen to be there was seen to be broad acceptance of policy direction. That doesn't happen often uh, in the UK, and I think it'd be it'd be interesting to see certainly in this Parliament. Um, um, I'd love to know what legislation looks like, which that's Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn vo- it, voting it for. Could be an interesting flavour, couldn't it? Yes, yeah, <laughs> it certainly could. Uh, right, gents, uh, shall, we, shall we shall we leave it there? I think that's everything for now. Excellent. Well, um, subscribe to us on iTunes or whoever your podcast provider is. Follow us on Twitter. I'm I'm at Jay Beardmore. Alex. I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. And I'm at GMCC underscore Christian. And of course, you can follow Pearson's at Pearson and underscore FSB. Uh, until next week, uh, when we'll have some more Brexit-based news. Uh, see you then. Bye bye. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.